Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics, and ending the stigma through educational discussions. The Vine podcast does not offer medical advice nor condone any use of illegal substances. Consult your physician or therapist before making changes to your wellness plan and before trying alternative healing medicines. Today, we welcome Mac Haddo, a senior fellow on public policy with the American Kratom Association, a consumer advocacy organization dedicated to preserving the right of consumers to have legal access to Kratom and their freedom to use Kratom to maintain their health and well-being. Mac served as the chief of staff of the Department of Health and Human Services during the Reagan administration and was the acting administrator of the Health Finance Administration. In addition to the American Kratom Association, Mac also serves as the managing partner of Upstream Consulting, a consulting and government relations firm. Welcome to The Vine, Mac. Thank you. I'm very glad to be with you this afternoon. Yes, welcome, Mac. Um, I come from a long career in political issue advocacy inside the Beltway um, and must say it's an absolute pleasure to have someone with your experience involved in the plant medicine movement. Um, I'm hoping we see more and more of that. Uh, We'd like to start off hearing about how our guests became involved with plant medicine and wanted to see if you can tell us a little bit about your association with plant medicine and the American Kratom Association. I'm glad to. Uh, Actually, I first was introduced uh, to plant medicines and dietary supplements by Orrin Hatch, who uh, I had the pleasure of running his first campaign for the United States Senate and went to work with him as a young man uh, back in Washington, D.C. And he was a devout user of uh, plant-based health materials and dietary supplements. And uh, he he was so passionate about it that he told me over and over again, you've got to start improving your health. And he told me this plan he had. And uh, and he's a Kratom user uh, today because he's, he's looked for those things that can help improve his quality of life and to maintain his health well-being. And that uh, served me in good stead as I started to be exposed to the numerous issues that uh, surround public policy about the FDA's attitude towards dietary supplements in general, any plant-based products, which is very negative as everyone knows, and and to help me understand how we can more effectively uh, align public policy with allowing people the freedom to use safe ingredients in order to make those decisions for themselves, which the FDA opposes completely. They want to regulate and control every aspect of our lives. And in this case, when it comes to plant-based medicines and with dietary supplements, the FDA is largely wrong uh, about their policy approach and with their attitudes towards the people that use these products. They think we're all crazies. Uh, They think they know better than us, and they're wrong. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, When I was at the Department of Health and Human Services, I was responsible for clearing all public testimony that was going to be submitted to the Congress. And the FDA was asked by then Senator Roth from Delaware, Delaware, who was looking into Herbalife, which is a multi-level marketing and nutritional company. uh, And he was hell bent to regulate them out of existence. And the FDA provided testimony, which said that there were seven people who had died from ingesting Herbalife products. Uh, I asked them to come in and explain that to me. And those seven deaths had nothing to do with Herbalife. It was a bias that the FDA had 
against multi-level marketing schemes because they believed that people were making impermissible health claims on behalf of the product. And because they were contractors rather than employees, they couldn't regulate the industry. And just to give you one example, they, they, their best example of deaths, a young man, 19 years old, stepped off the curb in New Orleans and got hit by a bus and was killed. And I said, how did that have anything to do with Herbalife? They said, well, he was taking Herbalife products at the time, and we theorized that he was impaired when he stepped off the curb. And I said, well, let me see the autopsy report. And they provided it to me. On his talk screen, he had three illicit drugs in his system. He likely was impaired, had nothing to do with Herbalife. But the FDA wanted to target a health nutritional product and a weight loss product rather than the truth. And that's really the problem we face with the FDA today. So can you tell us more about the plant behind Kratom? And I've heard it pronounced a few different ways. So if that is even the correct way to pronounce it, or is it Kratom? Um, I'm not sure, but we just would love for our listeners to learn a little bit more about it. So we know that the FDA is saying that they're against it, but why? It's a plant-based medicine. You know, where is it grown? Can you give us more insight behind the plant? Absolutely. Kratom is grown largely in Southeast Asia in a tropical climate. It takes a lot of water. Uh, it's now being grown successfully in Florida uh, and in Hawaii. Uh, we think that there may be some other opportunities with a managed environmental system throughout the United States, but it is always going to grow in Southeast Asia. Uh, it has been used safely in Southeast Asia for centuries. I was on a call this morning with Malaysian scientists who are funded in some, some part by the National Institutes on Drug Abuse here in the United States. They're one of the leading clinical laboratories looking at, or research organizations, looking at, at Kratom. And by the way, it's Kratom, Ketom, Kratom. Uh, it, it's pronounced all over the place. Uh, when I was in Thailand, they call it Kratom. Uh, in Indonesia, they call it Kratom. Uh, and, and it's Ketom and that kind of thing. So it has lots of names, but it, the plant itself is a part of the coffee family. Uh, it has alkaloids in it that have some potential therapeutic benefits. The two principal alkaloids are metrogenine and 7-hydroxymetrogenine. 7-hydroxy occurs at a very low level, less than one and a half percent of the plant content. Metrogenine, which has this uh, powerful benefit of analgesic properties when it hits the mu opioid receptor in the brain, it, it will actually relieve pain. What it doesn't do, and this is the fabulous miracle of plants, it doesn't have the reinforcing euphoric high that synthetic chemicals like opioids have, so people are not addicted to it, and it doesn't go to your respiratory system. It has what's called a partial agonist effect. So when the FDA claims, oh, well, Kratom is an opioid, they correctly point out that it has effects like an opioid in terms of analgesic properties, but it does not have the reinforcing therapeutic high and therefore is not addictive in the same way that opioids are. And it doesn't go to your respiratory system, which is what accounts for so many, so many of the people that die because they literally suffocate uh, because it impacts your respiratory system. Safely used for centuries, uh, it's been used in the United States and every single one of the deaths that the FDA claims is attributable to Kratom use has been proven to be wrong. Uh, they, it's all poly drug use. Not surprising that people are trying to get off of opioids and they're using Kratom. And if they get caught in that addiction cycle and they're in process but not yet complete of it, they could have Kratom in their system. Uh, not surprising that people would use Kratom for uh, its potential analgesic effects or mood smoothing effects and might also be using other products. But I'm telling you that they cannot attribute a single, not a single death. 
And, and the Malaysian scientists concluded and, and confirmed to me that they haven't seen it in any of their long-term studies of high uh, kratom consumers in Malaysia and in, in Thailand. So the FDA is just wrong, wrong on the science and wrong on the policy. So how is kratom consumed? Do you smoke it? Do you swallow it? So it's, uh, it's consumed largely in the United States in a powder form, either directly uh, taking the powder, they call it toss and wash. They put it on the back of their tongue and wash it down. It tastes terrible. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you have to want to take it. It's not going to be popular with kids. Uh, it doesn't give you the U- euphoric high. You know, it's just awful tasting stuff, but it has these great benefits. Uh, so th- to bypass the taste, uh, uh, manufacturers put in the capsules or pills. And then there are some products that are made like a five-hour energy shot that's in a drink. And they flavor it to reduce the bitter taste of it, that kind of thing, or you can drink it fast. Uh, those are the ways that it's generally consumed. Uh, I have heard reports of people smoking it, uh, but it doesn't. It, the way that the the uh, alkaloids work, it doesn't help you to inhale it through smoke. And so it's really not. If you're if you're smoking it, you're just being creative, and you're not getting any of its benefits. <laughs> right. I have heard it put in a smoothie, and so that might be to make it taste better. Then. Absolutely, and and uh, people tell me that all the time that they'll. They'll mix it with orange juice or a smoothie, and it makes it more tolerable in terms of the taste. But uh, it, it's it's increased dramatically from uh, from 2016 when the FDA first attempted to schedule kratom. There were about three to five million kratom consumers in the United States. Today, there are 12 to 15 million kratom consumers, and they f- fall into three buckets of users. One is the people that use it for the energy boost and increased focus like you would a cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, they brew it in a tea. I should have mentioned that. Tea is okay. a very popular way, uh, just hot water mixing the powder. Uh, and then the second group are people that have found that a little higher dose, that it helps them smooth out their moods and reduce anxiety and, and help them with depression. And then the third bucket, again, at a higher use are those people that are struggling with acute and chronic pain, and they find that they're able to manage their pain. It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't eliminate it entirely. And I'll give you a great example of this. There was a woman who testified at the Utah State Legislature in favor of our what we call the Kratom Consumer Protection Act. And she had this fascinating story and she only had three minutes to tell it. So I sensed that there wasn't a, you know, a full description of it. But she said that she had suffered from a very rare brain condition, that she had had three operations, including an electrical brain stimulator placed in her brain. Nothing worked. And she was on opioids. And because of her condition, only had a limited dose of opioids. So she had to choose whether she wanted to sleep at night or to function during the day. And it's just an awful cycle. And she said then a friend of hers recommended Kratom. And she said she took it. And the first day except for very rare flare-ups of this condition, she hasn't touched opioids since. Oh, and so I said, hey, she's the great person to come and talk to the governor when we have right. a bill signing ceremony. And she showed up there and the governor said, we sat down to sign the bill and he looked up and he said, what's Kratom? <laughs> a lot of public policy policymakers don't know. And she said, well, let me tell you. And she opened up this little canister and she told this story. And she told the most important thing that well, she wasn't able to tell in the story that she told before the committee because of time limitations, she said, it's restored my life. She goes, I can be a fully functioning employee at the firm where I work. I can be a mom to my kids. I can be a wife to my husband. And she goes, before that, I was debilitated completely. 
So there's the problem that we're, that we're running into. And uh, this is a very difficult problem in the United States where people are finding this solution. And I've heard thousands of people, literally thousands of people in testify saying Kratom has saved my life. And that's what, from a harm reduction policy, we ought to be supporting, not trying to demonize or ban. Yeah, it's just crazy to me that the World Health Organization and the FDA are working to ban this internationally. I and mean, can you help us explain like what this cur- current legal standing of Kratom is and why would the World Health Organization target this plant and work so hard with the FDA to get it banned? So, so currently Kratom is legal for sale in the United States uh, in all but, four, all but six states. Those six states succumbed to and were seduced by the FDA's disinformation campaign between 2011 and 2016. There hasn't been a single state that's banned Kratom since that time because we've been able to share the science with them. The FDA has twice tried to ban Kratom, the first in 2016 and the DA withdrew it. First time they'd ever withdrawn an application for scheduling under what's called the emergency powers of scheduling. 82 previous times, this was the first. Clearly the FDA was wrong. The second time they tried was rescinded by the, uh, the, the Assistant Secretary for Health in 2018 saying they had produced disappointingly poor evidence and data. It was astounding. That hadn't ever been done before. And what the Assistant Secretary of Health said was this, the science was so poor that he gave them a list of things they would have to do to prove it. And then he said the powerful statement, millions of Americans would be put at risk if you were to ban Kratom because they would be forced back onto these dangerous opioids that have a high addiction liability and are potentially deadly. And then, then, of course, the FDA lost that battle. What are they doing now? They've gone to the, the uh, UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs and attempted now to get it scheduled. And we have an October the 11th pre-review assessment by the World Health Organization as to whether Kratom should be banned globally. Now, that's happening when Thailand just rescinded their long, decades-long ban on Kratom initiated in 1943 because the American pharmaceutical industries came to Thailand and said, we will buy every poppy plant you can grow in order to produce opioids. And so the Thai, the Thai government said, well, we're, everybody's growing Kratom. We're going to eliminate that. So they, they burned down all the, the Kratom trees and they started growing poppy plants. Well, that market faded and now people are growing Kratom again. And so Thailand not only changed their policy, they decriminalized it. And now they've released over a thousand prisoners that were convicted on Kratom possession. They're a zero tolerance country and they've expunged the records of over 8,000 people. That's what the outcome of a ban would be. We would be criminalizing people in the United States for taking a natural product that helps them. And the FDA wants to put all those people behind bars. It makes no sense from a public policy standpoint. So it's, it's my understanding that the World Health Organization and the UN can only make recommendations that, that are neither legal or binding. So, so what's the rub? Explain to me how their recommendation or is, is a ban then something further than that recommendation? So the great question, because I thought the same thing you just said, that this is just going to be a recommendation. However, what I've learned is that the United States is a a party to what's called the 1971 Convention, which is a treaty obligation. There are two of them, 161 Convention, 171, the other one is 71 Convention. Both of them obligate member countries to follow the scheduling recommendations that are made by the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs. 
So the process is the World Health Organization is tasked with the responsibility of evaluating the criteria, whether the substance meets the criteria for scheduling. They look at addiction liability, they look at the pharmacologic activity, and they look at the health benefits that might be achieved and what the negative benefits of allowing the substance to continue. So they will make a recommendation uh, in the what's called a critical review if it goes to that. The decision will be made in October as to whether they're going to open a full critical review. That would, uh, about a year of study would ensue, and then they would make a recommendation to the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs whether Kratom should be added to the treaty obligation. And if that happens, two things. The, the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs rarely uh, disapproves of any recommendation from WHO. So it is a part of the process that is in place that we are at risk for. And if they add it to the treaty obligation, the United States is obligated to open a scheduling procedure. And we'd have to go back through the fight again about not making sure that it's not scheduled. And that would be a horrendous situation because then they would have the weight of the UN Commission claiming that it's, it's deadly when we know the science doesn't support that. So the good news is that the expert committee at the World Health Organization is a, a panel of scientists. And we have always said science should be the basis for any public policy. And since the Assistant Secretary for Health issued his withdrawal of the previous FDA, um, uh, the, the recommendation for scheduling, wherein he said that it was disappointingly poor evidence and cited the emerging science that was supporting Kratom, we have since then had over more than, had more than 100 plus reviewed articles, peer-reviewed articles published about the benefits of Kratom. And so if these scientists critically look at the science, they are going to find that Kratom is a safe product that has significant benefits and that it should not be scheduled. So we're going to, we're going to rely on that. We're going to fight hard and we're going to open up every avenue of communication that we can to show the UN and the WHO that we, we have the science on our side and we think we'll win that battle. So I saw that the American Kratom Association won a lawsuit against the FDA to reopen com the comment period. Is that comment period for those that oppose the, the Kratom ban still open so that our listeners could participate? Or is that time since passed? It's, it's still open. Now, there's a technical issue here. The FDA received notice from the World Health Organization through the Department of State on June the 10th of this year, saying that they were opening up the pre-review. They waited 42 days before they published the notice in the Federal Register, opening up a statutorily required comment period. They opened it up for a very short period of time, 11 business days, and they claimed that that was sufficient. We typically open up comment periods for these kinds of regulations of 30 to 90 days. And they were doing it for you know a third of that, of the, of the 30 days, 11 days. And it was ridiculous. So we sued them. And what we found out was the FDA could provide no explanation to the judge as to why they waited 42 days to open the comment period. They could not explain why they were limiting the comment period other than to say that it wasn't all that important because they're obligated by statute to accept them and review them. They don't have to pass them on to the WHO, which is ridiculous, of course. The judge wasn't impressed with those arguments. And so she made it clear to them that she wanted to see some sort of resolution to this. And so they agreed to reopen the comment period and held it open for uh, two more to the 24th of August. So the FDA portal is closed. 
But we have what we have since found from the WHO is they're accepting comments up to September 24th, another month. Okay. So our comment portal is open. It's protectkratom.org. We welcome and encourage every American that will get on that site and comment. If Even if you don't use Kratom, protect access to yes. medicinal plants. Make sure the FDA doesn't win a battle with it's largely based on their lies. And we hope everyone will get on there and say, do not let, do not ban this this plant or other plants because this is what's what's going to happen. If they get away with this end run around the Controlled Substances Act, they'll do it all the time. They've lost twice when they tried here in the United States. This is nothing more than a blatant end run against our federal laws that, under the Controlled Substances Act, and they're going to try to get the UN to do what they couldn't accomplish here in the United States. And so we're going to fight hard. We need every person who will join that fight to get on protectkratom.org and sign a comment saying, don't do this. Why, what is, what is the FDA's interest in this? It, it's just how they operate. Um, it's, it's the ruling body that thinks plant medicine isn't safe. What's their end game? So the FDA uh, has had a long-standing bias against all plants and dietary supplements starting in the 60s. Got it. And that culminated in a real overplay by the FDA in the early 90s when they started saying that dietary supplements were killing people and that they were dangerous and that they wanted to ban all dietary supplements and vitamins uh, and make force all of those products through the new, new uh, drug application process. And everybody knows that wasn't going to happen. You don't have the ability to patent. You don't have the interest in some of those products. So the FDA made their power play. Uh, the uh, I don't know if, well, you're, both of you are too young to remember this, but in 1993, there were 300,000 calls made to the U.S. Capitol. It literally shut down their switchboard and it forced them to reconfigure their switchboard to handle more volume. And there were 700,000 letters. This is before emails. And so 700,000 letters were sent to the Congress. The result of that was that unanimously the Congress passed the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, which slapped the FDA down, imposed strict regulations on what they could do to overregulate the products and allowed for new dietary ingredients to be entered into the marketplace. And so today you have more than 80% of Americans who use dietary supplements and vitamins to maintain their health and well-being. You have a $53 billion industry employing hundreds of thousands of people that if the FDA had their choice today, they would, they would repeal the Deshaies Act and force everybody back into that new drug application process. The bias against natural plants and against dietary supplements that held by the policy people at the FDA, unsupported by the science, is all about expanding their regulatory control. They want and they get, by the way, significant benefits from every new drug application. Under the Pres Prescription Drug User Fee Act, they, when it was first enacted in the, uh, it was right before 2000, they enacted PDUFA. And PDUFA in the first year accounted for about 9% of the overall uh, funding for the Center for D Drug Evaluation and Research. Now, that was done in order to make the industries pay for additional staff and equipment that's needed to evaluate new drugs. And the, the, the compromise was that the FDA would then give them a deadline certain when they would get something done. So there was that issue. Today, more than 60% of the funding at the FDA comes from PDUFA fees. And so if you're at the FDA and you want to expand your authority, you want more 
products going through the PDUFA process where their user fees paid. So that's one incentive. And so when you couple that with the inherent bias against any plant that's not chemically synthesized, that the FDA thinks is the holy grail for, uh, for drugs, th that's the problem we're confronting. So we simply have got to fight this battle on a constant basis because the FDA is not going to change. They, they have this embedded philosophy and we have to make sure that people have freedoms when you have safe products that are available. We're all for appropriately regulating a product to make sure that people don't adulterate it, make sure that people don't mislabel it, make sure that, that products that appropriately are kept from minors are. But this idea that you just ban something because you don't like it or because you want to benefit from a regulatory scheme, that's not American. And so we're fighting back hard as we can on that. And we know that we're in such a, a crisis, a mental health crisis. There's, you know, opioid addiction, you know, through the roof. I mean, it just it's so surprising to me that the pushback on this particular plant is having what it's had. And that's why we really wanted to bring you on and have you, you know, speak to this and dive in the way that you have. And we appreciate you really explaining this more because we have talked about, you know, so many different plant medicines on our podcast and really t discussed a lot about, you know, the changing landscape around cannabis and CBD. And we've seen in the CBD space where, you know, if a brand claims that CBD helps certain ailments, they will definitely be come after with you cannot say or claim that CBD has any health benefits. And I can see the same thing happening here with Kratom that, you know, the, the fact that it is helping others and, and we have all of these folks that are saying that, that they have many different benefits from using it. The fact that the FDA is coming after it, we have to band together and say that we want to fight for plant medicines. And so it's even if you've never used it, and I've never used it myself, um, I have nothing against it. I just haven't, I haven't tried it. Um, but you know, like Max said, does it matter if you've tried it or not? If you believe in fighting for these plant medicines and that people have the right to use plant medicines for their health and wellness, then this is a fight that we all need to band together to, to really fight against. So I really appreciate it. And I want to make sure that all of our listeners have as much information about how they can they can help you? Like, what can we do individually to help stop this ban? And how can our listeners, you know, find you and support your association and the movement? Well, thank you. Uh, protectgradum.org is the portal for making comments that will allow us to transmit to the World Health Organization the views of the Americans about this overreach by the FDA. Uh, AmericanKratom.org is our organizational website. We're a consumer advocacy group. Uh, we welcome the support of the entire plant-based medicine uh, community. Uh, we are working with states to pass the Kratom Consumer Protection Act, which does what the FDA should be doing at a state level. We've had five states pass it uh, that enacted into law. We've, we've got success in, in virtually 30 states that we're working with right now. Uh, we need people to step up and tell their legislators that this is an important priority to protect the right of, and freedoms of Americans to make intelligent choices about safe products and not let the bias of the FDA interfere with that freedom. And that's what's happening today, unfortunately. And I, and I would just say, look at the context of the public health crisis that we are involved in right now. You saw the data that showed that the uh, number of, of overdose deaths spiked dramatically. And I think largely because of the isolation that, that COVID get, it, it, things are going to get worse. And here you have a product that's helping people to manage their depression, to manage mental health issues, and to manage their acute and chronic pain. And the FDA wants to take it off the market rather than encourage people to use it. And you contrast that to the National Institutes of Drug Abuse Director, Nora Volko, 
who openly says we ought to encourage people to use any product that is helping them to avoid the opioids. And here, and, and she encourages the use of Kratom and wants more studies. And she has funded through her agency more than $30 million in studies that are coming across uh, now with great results that are proving that Kratom is safe. This is the craziness of the FDA's position and, and they remain resolute in continuing to try to demonize the plant and to criminalize the people that use it. That we have to stop. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know. I, this was something yeah. that we really I needed. We on with you. <laughs> exactly, Mac. We, we just really, um, we wanted to make sure that we understood, you know, more about the plant. So thank you for talking about the history of that. But really, this is an urgent matter. These comments are open now through September 24th. We encourage our listeners to you know, go to the website, learn more about it, um, support the American Kratom Association, and, you know, continue to help us put the fight up against supporting plant medicine. So thank you, Mac, for joining us on today's show. My pleasure. And we're in your debt for allowing us to discuss this issue because it's really important for people to react to it. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Vine, a plant media project podcast. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to never miss an episode. For cannabis and psychedelic news, visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. And to support the plant medicine movement, purchase PMP merch from our online store. Together, we can end the stigma around plant medicine. Mm-hmm.